The greatest story ever told is a true story. It is a story of adventures, battles, kings and queens, heroes and villains, good and evil, history and prophecy. It is your story. Come join the adventure of the Bible story. Chapter 190 Jesus Speaks Several Parables Most Jews were not extremely religious. They believed in God, but only kept some of His laws. However, the Pharisees were quite devout. They were looked up to and held positions of authority in Judea under the Roman Empire. They strictly observed the commandments and traditions of their religion. They strictly kept the letter of the law such as God's commands on clean meats, but they also added hundreds of their own laws to their religion. Their religion, like all of mankind's religions, was not from God. It was something they had invented themselves. But Jesus was willing to talk with Pharisees and teach them how to worship God the way he commands. He spoke with them in the streets, taught them among the crowds at the synagogues, and dined with them in their homes. Some Pharisees were more willing than others to listen to Jesus, and some Pharisees, especially their leaders, hated him. One day, a leading Pharisee invited Jesus to have dinner with a group of people at his home on the Sabbath. The group milled around the table, talking. When it was almost time to sit down and ask the blessing, each worked to position himself at a seat as near as possible to the host, the leading Pharisees, or Jesus. After the blessing was asked and the people began to eat, Jesus noticed that one of the men there was suffering. The man's face was so bloated that it hurt him to move it. It hurt to move at all. He had so much excess fluid in his body that his insides were swollen. The man was in constant pain. Jesus looked around the table at the Pharisees and lawyers. He knew some of them were trying to find ways to accuse him and convince people that his teachings were wrong. He looked again at the suffering man. Everyone in the room had heard that Jesus could heal. Some had seen him do it. Most knew that the Pharisees accused him of being a false teacher. They waited to see what Jesus would do. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Jesus asked. This was the heart of what the Pharisees and lawyers were focused on. They remained silent. They could not perform the miraculous healings that Jesus performed. They had decided that healing was work. So if Jesus healed today, he would be breaking God's commandment. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. That was what the Pharisees had decided. But were they right?
Jesus looked again at the man with the swollen face. The man was trying to be polite and not groan with pain, but it was clear that he was badly suffering. He desperately desired to be healed. Jesus knew that if he healed this man, the Pharisees would use it against him. But he decided to use this opportunity to heal this suffering man as a lesson on how to truly keep God's law. He took the man aside and healed him. The swelling in the man's face disappeared. The extra fluid inside his body disappeared. The severe pain he had endured for so long disappeared. It was a marvelous miracle. The people in the house were amazed. This man, who had suffered and suffered day in and day out, was suddenly changed. His face looked different, without all the swelling. He was moving his head and body normally, without wincing, without groaning. He jumped to his feet to embrace Jesus, thanking him over and over. He turned to his relatives and friends and embraced them as they hugged him back, crying tears of joy. The buzz quieted a little, and the people in the room looked from the heel man back to Jesus. Now he taught them an important lesson from the miracle they had just witnessed. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? He had asked. Now he continued. When one of you has your donkey or ox fall into a pit, even if it's on the Sabbath, which one of you does not immediately pull him out? No one answered him. After this joyful miracle from God, no one was bold enough to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath because he healed this man. And no one would admit that he considered it lawful to fix his own small, immediate emergencies, but unlawful to heal a man. Jesus knew that later the Pharisees would accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. But today, he had shown that it was lawful on the Sabbath to do such good deeds. We must obey God's Sabbath, but keeping the Sabbath holy includes doing good deeds for others and doesn't require us to ignore emergencies. Jesus had noticed what people often did when they were invited to someone's house for dinner. Right before it was time to sit down, they subtly maneuvered their way toward the best seats. They would try to sit closest to the host or to the most honored guests. That way, they could be part of their conversations and perhaps introduce things that could benefit themselves. People who sat further down the table typically had conversations with less important people who could provide them with fewer social and financial opportunities. After teaching people a powerful, dramatic lesson with a sensational healing, Jesus now taught them a relevant and practical way to exhibit a more godly attitude in everyday life. When you are invited to a wedding, don't sit in the best seats. He said, A more prominent man than you may have been invited, and that host may come and tell you, Give up your seat to that man. 
then you will be embarrassed to have to move down to the least desirable seats at the wedding. Instead, when you are invited, go and sit in the least desirable seats. That way when the host comes to you, he might say, friend, come sit in these better seats. Then you will be honored in front of the people eating with you rather than humiliated. Jesus summed up the lesson. Whoever exalts himself will be put to shame and whoever humbles himself will be honored. Jesus continued another lesson about social gatherings. When you host a dinner, he said to the host, don't call your friends, your family, or your rich neighbors. Don't invite them just so that they will repay you with an invitation. If you are then invited to their home, you receive what you were owed. Instead, invite people who are poor or disabled or unable to offer you anything in return. God knows that these people cannot pay you back by inviting you to their home or giving you some other sort of benefit. Jesus continued. But in the future, when God resurrects you to eternal life, he will bless you for being generous to them. These simple, practical lessons were especially meaningful coming from Jesus because of how he lived his everyday life. He ate not only with prominent Pharisees, but also with publicans, poor people, harlots, and others that most people did not want to be seen with. Jesus chose the less desirable things for himself and gave more desirable things to others. He had a joyful, content attitude that didn't compete with others for better things, and he gave generously to others even when they had no ability to give back to him. Jesus was teaching them not to try to get something from those around you, but instead to focus on giving. He was also teaching them to be willing to live their entire physical lives without receiving certain blessings, but to trust that God would resurrect them to receive eternal life in his kingdom. Thinking about the kingdom, one of the men at the table said, What a blessing it will be to dine in the kingdom of God. The man was looking forward to God's kingdom, but Jesus could tell that this man and many others did not actually understand what the kingdom was. A certain man prepared a great dinner and invited many people to come to it. When it was almost time for the meal to start, he sent his servant to tell his guests to come. But instead of eagerly coming, they all declined to come. The first guest said to the servant, I have bought some land and I need to go see it. Please have me excused from coming to the dinner. Another guest said, I have bought some oxen and I need to go work with them. Please have me excused from coming to the dinner. Another said, I recently got married and I need to spend time with my wife. Please have me excused from coming to the dinner. So the servant came back to his masters and told him that none of the invited guests wanted to come to his dinner. The master was angry and he told his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring here the poor, the injured, and handicapped as my guests. Master, we have done as you commanded, yet there are still empty tables. Go farther out to the highways and the rural areas. Find people and compel them to come to the dinner so that my house may be filled. For I say to you that I will allow none of those people who decline my first invitation to come to my dinner. 
Why did Jesus tell such a story in response to a man saying it would be a blessing to be in the kingdom of God? Jesus was comparing the kingdom to a great dinner. Those whom God called to be in the kingdom were the guests who were invited to the dinner. Even though the dinner was a great event, like the kingdom, the guests became more interested in other things, land, possessions, people. They ended up caring more about those things than about the dinner. In the same way, many people whom God calls to his kingdom will be more interested in possessions or people or other things and will devote their lives to those things instead of to God. But God will not have an empty kingdom. He will invite others instead, even people that others would consider foolish or weak. Until enough people chose to dedicate themselves to God, and to being in his kingdom. The man who had remarked about what a blessing it would be to be in God's kingdom, as well as the other people Jesus was talking to, had thought it would be obvious and somewhat easy to choose God's kingdom. He thought that whomever God invited to be in his kingdom would surely accept the invitation. But Jesus showed that receiving the invitation is the easy part. The hard part is responding to it. Dedicating your life to God, sacrificing things you want in this life, and having faith that you will be rewarded in the kingdom. Sometime later, Jesus was walking with a multitude of people News had spread about how he had healed people, including the man with the swollen face. Some in the crowd wanted to hear what he taught. Some wanted to disprove what he taught. Many of them believed they were his disciples and supporters because they followed along to hear what he said. All wanted to see if he would perform another miracle. But very few, if any, understood who he was and the true meaning of what he taught. Jesus stopped and turned to face the people walking along with him and made an abrupt, surprising statement. If any man comes to me and does not love me more than his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Many people assumed that Jesus had many disciples. Jesus was telling them that even though large crowds came to listen to him, only those who chose him, loved him, and submitted to him were truly his disciples. Most of the people who listened to Jesus' parables and followed him to hear what he had to say did not submit to him. They submitted instead to the influence and wishes of their parents siblings, friends, co-workers, and religious leaders, and to their own wishes. Whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus continued. He was informing them that they had to do much more than simply agree with some of his teachings. If they wanted the truth of God to make a difference in their lives, 
they had to submit to him and even suffer for him in order to be his true followers. Jesus illustrated his point with two parables about counting the cost. Which of you planning to build a tower does not sit down and count the cost first to make sure you have enough money to finish the project? Or what king who plans to go to war against another king does not first count his troops and weapons to see whether he can win the battle or whether he should ask for peace? So likewise, any of you who does not forsake everything, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus was telling them that just because they witnessed him performing miracles, listened to him, and agreed with some of his teachings, did not mean they were truly following him. Following Jesus was a major undertaking. The cost of being his disciple was giving up everything else, sacrificing every other desire, putting him and his teachings above everything else in life. It is easy to think you are a Christian, but it is much harder to actually be a Christian. Among the crowds that followed Jesus were prominent people, everyday people, and people thought of as lowly. Among them were publicans, men appointed by the Roman Empire to collect taxes, which people hated. The Pharisees and scribes felt superior to these people they regarded as sinners. When they saw that Jesus talked with and ate with these lowly people, they murmured against him. They believed that God turned away from people who committed sins and that righteous people should stay away from sinners as well. Since Jesus did not avoid those sinners, the Pharisees believed he could not be a righteous person, and he certainly wasn't the Messiah. It is true that God turns away from sin and commands his people to avoid certain types of sinners, but he still loves people even though they commit sin. Knowing how the Pharisees and scribes viewed his actions, Jesus told a new parable. He compared himself to a shepherd and the people who listened to him as his flock. He pointed out that when a sheep becomes lost, a good shepherd will leave his other 99 sheep and will pursue that one lost sheep until he finds it and saves it from death. People who follow Jesus with a humble, trusting attitude, even if they made mistakes, are people he will work with. Jesus added another parable as an example. He described a woman who has ten silver pieces, but then loses one. Even though one silver piece is only a small part of the ten, she will go to a lot of trouble to retrace her steps and find that lost coin. Like the shepherd finding his lost sheep and the woman finding her lost coin, God rejoices when a sinner repents and returns to him. To emphasize the lesson, Jesus then began telling one of his most powerful parables. He described a father who had two sons. The younger son was immature 
and told his father he wanted his inheritance now instead of later. The father gave the young man his portion of goods, typically one-third of everything the father possessed, and the young son started spending it. He traveled to a far country. He spent money on nice clothes, rich food, and alcohol. He didn't work hard, stayed up late, partied too much, and made terrible decisions with his money and his character. Then a famine struck that country. Even though the young man had started out with a lot of money, he had saved none of it, invested none of it, and spent it all on things that didn't last. He was now bankrupt and did not even have enough money to buy himself simple food. So he sold his services to one of the farmers in the land, and he was put to work feeding pigs. There, among the pigs, the young man thought about his many mistakes. Then he thought about his father back home. He knew his father's servants ate better than he was able to eat right now. So he decided to return home, confess his mistakes, and ask to be one of his father's servants. As the young man finally neared the end of his long journey home, his father saw him a long way off. The sun was extremely thin, dusty and dirty, and his clothing was raggedy. It was obvious that he had wasted his inheritance. Yet his father ran to him and hugged and kissed him, joyful that he had returned. The young son admitted that he had sinned greatly. I am not worthy to be called your son, he told his father. But the father was so joyful that his son had returned that he ordered his servants to bring him nice clothes and shoes, which marked him as a free man and not a servant. He even gave his son his own ring, representing his father's authority. Then the father declared a feast for his son, who had been so far gone that it was as if he had been dead. But now he was back. This emotional story illustrates how God is like a very forgiving father. He loves his spiritual children. When they sin against him, he hates the sin but rejoices greatly when they repent. Jesus wasn't finished with the parable. He then described how, as everyone was enjoying the feast, the firstborn son returned home from working in his father's fields. When he saw the festivities for his younger brother, he became angry. His father noticed and asked why he was angry. I have served you for many years, never once sinning like my brother, he told his father. But you never honored me as he is being honored. Then the father, who had shown such forgiveness and love to his young son, now showed forgiveness and love to his upset older son. Son, you are ever with me, he told him, and all that I have is yours. Thus, this story also shows how the father loves his spiritual children who serve him faithfully. 
and He corrects them lovingly when they grow jealous. God inspired the disciples to record these parables. He then miraculously preserved them as part of the New Testament for the past 2,000 years so that people who believe Him, obey Him, and have His Holy Spirit working with them or in them can understand what Jesus was teaching and apply it to their lives. One day, Jesus received a message from Mary and Martha, two sisters who believed his teaching and whom he loved. The message read, Lord, he whom you love is sick. Jesus knew they were referring to their brother Lazarus, another person whom he loved very much. Jesus could tell from the message that the sickness was extremely serious, but he chose to stay where he was for a couple of days, working on the east side of the Jordan River with his disciples. Then he told them, We are going to journey across the river back into Judea. His disciples were worried. The Pharisees and other leading Jews had become so hateful toward Jesus that they were now seeking to kill him. They had even tried to stone him. Now Jesus wanted to go back into their territory. This meant that he and perhaps his disciples could be hurt, imprisoned, or killed. They voiced their concerns, but Jesus said he had work he must do. The disciples obediently followed him back into danger. Knowing that Lazarus had already died, Jesus and his disciples journeyed back to Judea. They went to Bethany, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. When they arrived in Bethany, many Jews were trying to comfort Martha and Mary. Lazarus had been a good man and well-liked, and they mourned his death. He had been dead for four days. As Jesus walked toward the house, Martha came out to meet him. Her face wet with tears, she said, Lord, if you were here, my brother would not have died. Jesus looked at her squarely. Your brother will rise again, he answered. I know, said Martha. He will rise again in the resurrection someday. Jesus took this opportunity to teach Martha and many others something about the resurrection. He made this stunning statement. I am the resurrection and the life. Whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord. Martha answered. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Then Mary came out, still crying, and fell at his feet. If you had been here, Lazarus would still be alive. She said, aching with grief. Jesus wept. Not because he felt hopeless that Lazarus had died, but because Mary, Martha, and the others did not fully believe who he was and what God's power could do. Going to the cave where Lazarus's body had been buried, Jesus commanded that the stone covering be removed. The mourners were shocked. Martha said, 
He's been dead four days. He will stink. But Jesus replied, Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? As they took the stone away, he began to pray. He thanked the Father for having already heard his prayer. Then he commanded in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Inside the cave, the body of Lazarus began to change. It became healthy once again. The heart began to beat. The blood began to circulate. The nose and lungs began to breathe and the human spirit re-entered the brain. Lazarus's eyes opened. He could see nothing because his eyes were covered. But he could see a glimmer of light. Struggling to his feet, Lazarus shuffled and hopped toward the light and the voice he had heard. Suddenly, he felt fresh air and heard voices people gasping and shouting. Someone screamed his name. Lazarus! He heard footsteps rushing toward him and then felt his arms and legs being unbound. Someone took away the cloth that had been covering his eyes. The light was blinding at first, but then he could see. His sisters Martha and Mary were crying uncontrollably <laughs> and hugging him. He also saw many other people, including his friend and master, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Christ had just resurrected Lazarus from the dead. This incredible miracle stunned Martha, Mary, Lazarus, and the other Jews who were there. The news quickly spread. Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the dead! But even though Jesus' teachings were biblical and he miraculously healed people, even resurrecting people from the dead, this did not stop the Pharisees, Sadducees, lawyers, and other Jewish leaders from disbelieving and trying to discredit him. In fact, the more he taught and the more miracles that he performed as a result of his faith in his father, the more the Jewish leaders decided they needed to find a way not only to discredit him, but to kill him. To be continued in our next episode and continue the adventure by reading the Bible story. Find it under the Resources tab at pcg.church.